friends, welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. You are joining in on part three of a series that we are doing, trying to unpack this thing called the world. What is, quote, the world as Scripture uses it, and why is Scripture so incredibly concerned about it? Um, Passages that we've been reading like, keep yourself from being polluted by the world, and even stronger passages like, don't you know that friendship with the world is becoming an enemy of God? And so we're just trying to get enough distance from it. And to be honest, it feels like a half an inch to pull our own selves out of it, just enough perspective to talk about it and unpack it. And so this is part three. With me this week is uh, my son, Blaine, who runs the And Sons podcast with Sam and John Dale on our team. As I've been doing with the previous two podcasts, I'm going to throw out a couple cultural phenomena, and we're going to kind of use that to riff and unpack what is the world in our current context. Now, if you weren't here with episode one, I use Starbucks and self-driving cars. And why are we so fixated on convenience? The future of the automobile industry is self-driving vehicle. You don't even drive your own car anymore. And then in episode two, what does it say about us that post a review, leave a comment is such a given, right? As soon as you leave a restaurant, my Google Maps program is asking me to review it. And then tattoos as a cultural phenomenon, $1.6 billion spent every year in the U.S. on tattoos. Everybody from six-year-olds to grandmothers have them. What is with that? And we talked about the exaltation of the self in episode two. So here we go, episode three, your two cultural phenomenon. The first one I want to throw out there is clickbait. So John, the world is now operating on a currency of our attention. And therefore, everyone, especially marketers, are trying to grab our attention. And so one of the ways they do that is by putting headlines and images in front of us that make us want to click on them. And so this term clickbait has come about um, sometimes because people use it nefariously. They put a title and an image in your feed on Facebook or on YouTube, and you click on it, and it turns out it actually had nothing to do with what the title and the image were, hence the term clickbait. But it points to this situation that we find ourselves in where we are never without our attention being fixated on something. Or asked for. And everyone is competing for that attention. Okay. Some of you don't know that John and Amy actually have a YouTube channel. Your family has a YouTube channel. You guys have had it for several years now. It's actually very, very popular. And you've been wrestling with the pressure to use clickbait. Absolutely. So describe the personal dilemma. So there is an immense personal pressure to have every episode be more popular than the last. And the fascinating thing about clickbait is you're actually playing not to people, but to an algorithm that is trying to predict what people are going to do. And so certain keywords, certain types of images are very likely to attract the algorithm's attention, which will then put it in front of more people and more people will click on it. Gatsooks. Okay, so all, all we're doing right now, this is the cultural pass, is what in heaven's name does clickbait say about us? Or this thing that 
Scripture warns is the world. Well, I see two things right away. One of them is being a little bit familiar with the history of copywriting and message production. And there's a very, very famous copywriter who is sort of credited with creating clickbait, although he was a newspaper writer. So it shows you that this stuff is not just uh, restricted to our movement. Yeah, But he wrote this piece of copy that was two clauses, and it was, they laughed when he sat down at the piano, but then he started to play. And why this is so significant is because what he explained and what is sort of like grew up in the copywriting world was, if you don't know how to push on people, just go to the seven deadly sins because those are the most reliable triggers we have available. And he goes, they laughed and he sat down at the piano. We're going off of pride. Then he started to play. We go to something far more powerful. We go to envy. But then you can just see that everywhere in the way that clickbait works of no one thought he could start a $10,000 company. Then he found this trick. Like you see those things set up. And so the first thing I just see in the world is sort of rewarding the development of the false self or that it's actually profitable to invest in people's uh, flesh and brokenness. One thing, you just see that running totally rampant. All clickbait is based on the seven deadly sins. Not all of it, but it's built (laughs) built to lean on the seven deadly sins. Yeah, appeal to. Lust, anger. Right. The other one I see is just sort of the apocalypse for Marcus Aurelius. Didn't think he'd come up in this conversation. But Roman emperor also happens to be the Roman emperor who gets killed right at the beginning in the movie Gladiator. Great philosopher, but he had an observation that markets basically worked because of the inability of people to reckon with their insatiable desire. And so when I see clickbait, I also just see, wow, given your observation, John, that what's valuable is people's attention, what you can do to get that intention is you can actually play upon their insatiable desire for all kinds of things, story, meaning, uh, even like scandal, like everything. And in the world, you simply have a solution held out for the insatiable desire of human beings in the creation of limitless messages. Yeah. Gang, this is very, very personal. Ransomed Heart faces this, uh, like the Dales do. I mean, we, we would love more people to listen to our podcast. We'd love more people to read our blogs, to come to our website. We'd love more people to watch this, listen to that, follow us on Facebook, etc. And the pull to the sensational, the competition now for people's attention. Okay, so that's one of the things I want to hold up. I want to say, if you are not aware of what it means to live in the world today, your attention is a commodity that is being fought for with utter abandon, scrupulously, passionately by everyone else, including good old folks like us who are trying to get a message out to the world. All right, so that's one thing. I riffed on this a a couple weeks ago. If you listen to the, the sermon that I gave in a local church, I was talking about, I can't go anywhere without assault. Gas station TV, you know, I the particular station I use in town, you as soon as you put your card in and take the nozzle off the, the latch, they know you're there, right? Click, this TV comes on and starts yelling at me. Advertisements, intriguing stories, et cetera. And 
And the other example I was using was my online Bible programs that I enjoy so much. BibleStudyTools.com, Bible Gateway, Bible Hub, all that great stuff. God bless those people for putting online this free biblical wisdom that you used to have to pay $35,000 on a seminary degree to get, right? And now, John, you're the product. You're getting sold to those advertisers. Exactly. So on the side, Google knows my buying patterns. And so I was on this morning looking up some of the verses for today, and there is, you know, ads for, okay, so here comes the confession. Orvis is the company and dry flies. Okay. Spring here in Colorado. Fly fishing season's about to open up. Yes, I have been buying some flies online. Boom. Like the algorithms, the technique, the brilliance. I mean, suddenly there's the marketing and it worked. It got my attention. I'm trying to read Psalm 1, but instead I'm looking at this really cool (laughs) Orvis ad. The other thing that just floors me is the ads just start playing. These aren't just banners. These are well-made videos, and they you don't click play. It just starts playing. So, heads up, gang, phenomenon number one, your attention is under massive assault, and that has implications that we'll get to today. I want to throw another one out to you because I think this one is super intriguing, and I haven't had a chance to talk to anybody about it. The experience of the Apple Store. Now, surely you tech-savvy guys who've been in an Apple store in the last, you know, 12 months. Just remember the experience from the glass doors to walking in to the layout, the ambiance, that whole, what does that say? Describe the experience of the Apple store. So, John, I was in a Best Buy uh, for the first time in years the other day. And I think it's really interesting to compare and contrast the two. When you're in Best Buy, it's like being on Facebook. There are things everywhere vying for your attention. And they don't care what, you know, whether you look at a little GoPro camera or all of a sudden you're looking at a pair of headphones. Or a washing machine. Or a washing machine. Yeah. They're willing to sell you anything. The Apple Store experience is completely sanitized of anything to take your attention except for an Apple product. And so it's, it's as if they understand, which they do, that until you walk through the doors of that store, everything is vying for your attention. And then when you get in there, all of a sudden it's peaceful and calm and white and clean, and there's nothing but the 50 products or 30 products that they want to grab your attention with. Okay, so notice they're not playing Muzak. There's no, there's no background noise, right? It's quiet. It's lovely. It's clean. There's no clutter. Right, but it's just so crazy where you have those things which we value in places like wilderness but linked to the act of buying the smartphone. And so you have linked together the sort of triumph of technology with the relief that people crave for. And the more and more that you can get, you know, people to associate uh, piece with a piece of freaking technology that you bought. Yep. Like the more effectively you've rubbed people in to be a lifetime Apple consumer. Everything is clean. Everything is very sleek. Everything is a click or a swipe away. 
and gang, I know if you work for Best Buy or Apple or Google or YouTube, we're really not ripping on companies. We're trying to describe what is the world right now and how do we, as people who are trying to be disciples of God, how do we react to it? Because you you live in it, but the scripture says, but don't be friends with it. Don't align with it. And Morgan in episode one was confessing, we all have divided allegiances here. I mean, everyone at this table, including Alan, who's doing the producing, every one of us has an iPhone. Okay, so this isn't ripping on companies. We're trying to describe this phenomenon. It's clean, it's sleek, it's peaceful, it's white, it's um, everything is a click or a swipe away. And what I want to say is technology will make your life wonderful. I really think that's the bottom line message. You know, we have phenomenal screens. Look at the colors of the photos and the videos you can watch. We have phenomenal audio on this product, and it's just going to be amazing as you're listening to your favorite music. Your life is going to be wonderful because of technology. And so I'm going to hold those two things up as we get into week three here on the world. I think the assault on our attention, to come back to that for a moment, here's why that's an issue. As a regular practice down through the ages, followers of Christ have believed that to be able to give God your attention was a fairly important thing. To be able to meditate on the scriptures, right? There's tons of admonitions for that. I meditate on your word, right? And to focus on Christ, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, right? Hebrews 12, the author and perfecter of our faith. I don't think we realize how much the world and technology is the answer, and the assault now on our attention has actually made that very difficult to do. John, it's so true. How many of us have used our phone as an alarm clock? And therefore, the moment we wake, we have in our hand the entire world, all these things competing for our attention. It was actually last year that we as a family made a decision to just have a policy. We don't have phones in our bedrooms. And so all of our phones go out on the landing outside the bedrooms and they charge out there. And if you want to use it for your alarm, that's fine. You have to get up and you know go turn the alarm off. But every morning now, I'm faced with a choice that, that I wasn't 20 years ago, which is what do I do with that first 30 minutes of my day? And it is an act of defiance that I choose not to open my phone, that I choose to go down to my study, to take time in prayer, to take time reading scripture. And there was a long season of my life where well-meaning, unbeknownst to me, I had given that period of my day over to whatever it was that Facebook or Google wanted to throw at me. Okay, push notifications, right? We could unpack an episode on that, but just you don't wake up to nothing. Right. You wake up to several things that are already waiting for your attention on your phone. It's just so fascinating to think that you wake up with your desire for life and then immediately this, this, this decision of where am I going to take that between competing alternatives because you have the promise of life represented in your iPhone, which is waiting for you, but then also these disciplines that are meant to like anchor your soul. But it's interesting, Deb, like you mentioned 
a second ago, the volume of messages, like the fact that the inability to direct your attention to things is taking away from a core discipline of our life with God, riding right alongside that. It's really fascinating where early 90s, French philosopher Jean Baudrillard looked at the world and what he said was, oh my gosh, all we have is images that just refer to images. We have messages, an article that takes you to another article that takes you to another article. You know, you get on your iPhone and it's just one thing after another. And what he said was, when all we have is images that refer to other images, a next thing, next thing, we have nothing that directs us to reality. And so it is also true that the competition for your attention is actively decreasing your capacity for reality. Okay, this is enormous because you guys weren't in on the first two podcasts, but what I have said to our listeners, we could title this series The Flight from Reality because I think ultimately that's what the world is. It is the flight from reality. And so, you know, episode one, this is all there is. And, and you can see, you know, this life is all there is. This moment is all there is. And our flight from and refusal to face, for example, death and our mortality if people were very, very aware of, of their imminent death, you can believe their openness to Christianity and to the gospel message would be a whole lot more than it currently is. We just, la, 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 the flight from reality and trying to make the self the center of the universe, the epicenter. And what we were describing last week is even as, as we've done that with more and more vehemence and more and more shouting and my opinion matters and I'm posting a one-star review and, you know, on and on it goes, and I'm covering my body with tattoos and this desperate search for self, you actually see that the substance of it is becoming less and less. People have less and less of an experience of selfhood. And so, you know, now this week, the assault on your attention and technology is removing you from reality. All of this could be seemingly thematic of that. Now, I'm not on Facebook. I have an account because we used to have a family page where family information was posted and stuff, but most of the family is bailed on Facebook, so that isn't helpful anymore. But I needed it yesterday because yesterday I did a Facebook Live announcement for the online Bible study thing that we're doing, which is cool. It's worth it. It's a helpful thing. So this morning I thought, huh, I'm going to look at Facebook. My experience of just doing the right thumb scroll, right? You're just scrolling down your Facebook feed there, looking at different things, is shallow. The word I would give the experience is shallow. Shallowness. It's not substance. It's not depth, right? It's not the substance of reality. It's this funny comment and that cute video and, oh, this little Instagram thing that somebody posted over there because it's a neat little picture, you know, or a Pinterest thing, rather. And Oh, here's an ad from Chevrolet. And oh, you know, they must know that I once drove a Suburban. And, you know, just shallow, shallow. So, John, on that note, I got an email this morning with a blog post from a friend of mine, Seth Godin. And he talked about this exact idea. So the title of this was Mobile Blindness. He says, you don't need a peer-reviewed study to know that when people surf the web on their smartphones, they're not going as deep. We swipe instead of click. We scan instead of read, even our personal email. We get exposure to far more at the surface 
but we rarely dig in. As a result, the fine print gets ignored. We go for headlines, not nuance. It's a deluge of gossip and thin promises, not the relatively more immersive experience of the desktop web. And of course, the web was a surface treatment of a day spent with books and an uninterrupted flow on a single topic. It's not an accident that blog posts and tweets are getting shorter. We rarely stick around for the long version. Photokeratitis, snow blindness, happens when there's too much ultraviolet, when the fuel for our eyes comes in too strong and we can't absorb it. Something similar is happening to each of us, to our entire culture, as a result of the tsunami of noise vying for our attention. It's possible you can find an edge by going even faster and focusing even more on breadth at the surface, but it's far more satisfying and highly leveraged to go the other way instead, even if it's just for a few hours a day. If you care about something, consider taking a moment to slow down and understand it. And if you don't care, no need to even bother with the surface. Snow blindness because of the inundation of stuff coming at us. You guys, this is so part of just our daily experience, including the people making this podcast. Okay, so we're not just pointing fingers, but listeners, let's contrast that with Psalm 1. Okay, now listen to Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. What I want to point out in this psalm, you know, this isn't, so you better be reading your Bible every day. That's not this, okay? What I want to point out is there is an experience of rootedness, right? Of substance that is so life-giving, they look at that person, they say, oh my gosh, they never wither. Look at their life. They're flourishing because they're rooted. And then there's another experience of, quote, the world, which is described as like chaff that the wind blows away. It is so light, so ephemeral. That person's life lacks substance to such a degree that it's just, okay. So I think what we're after here, you know, there's so many, there's just tons of sermons and blogs and books out there now on technology and technology and kids and, you know, how much screen time. That's actually not what we're doing here. We're not ripping on screen time. What we're trying to point out to you is, first off, do you realize that your attention is something that is now being marketed to 24-7? You can't go anywhere without every piece of real estate. Literally, the handle on my shopping cart has an ad on it. Every single thing is coming at my attention, okay? That's an issue, gang. If the substant life here is a person who's able to be rooted so much that they are meditating on God and the beauty of his kingdom 
day and night, or our expression would be 24-7, like there's a substantive life and that life is being assaulted constantly. And what will we do with that? And I think the other issue too is the issue of substance. It is the issue of how do you become the kind of human being that is weighty, the kind of human being that has a flourishing life, that the idea of rooted and grounded is all through Scripture, right? Ephesians 3, when Paul's praying, that you would be rooted and grounded. Okay, I want to show you how real this is. I want to show you how much your capacity to give things attention has really been undermined simply by living in this world. We're going to pause literally right now, and I want you to try and give God 30 seconds of your attention, okay? You're just going to give your attention to Jesus. Go. How did it go? So three seconds in, I felt like one of the judges on The Voice. If in honesty, what I've had to do is spin my chair around and be like, hit the buzzer. Okay, I'm out. <laughs> like yeah. literally three seconds. Yes. And my mind had wandered to The Voice of all things. <laughs> to The Voice. I think I made it a couple seconds longer than you, John. So kudos to me. But then I had some good ideas about what we were talking about. But Exactly. Gang, I want you to try that this week. Just try giving God your attention for 60 seconds, two minutes. I think you're going to be startled that what you thought was a fairly easy thing to do so long as a song is playing or so long as you're listening to a sermon or so long, so long as something is helping you arrest your attention. But this idea of just simply being with God, that this is a very basic spiritual practice. This, this goes ancient into our faith. The ability to be present to God has been seriously eroded by the world in which we live, and therefore it's something that we want to push back against. It's interesting, Dad. We did a podcast on the Anthems podcast with Michael Cusick, and one of his observations, he works with addiction, and he'll ask the people that he's working with, like, what is the most difficult of the commands of God to obey? And they'll name sort of whatever verse addresses their addiction of like, you know, have no unclean thought or don't sit down with drunk or like whatever it is. And he's like, nope, that's not it. Like, the most difficult command of God for you to obey is be still and know that I am God. And, you know, these pieces are all so intertwined of rootedness stillness, reality. I was just thinking as you were talking how that verse, which, you know, you can translate as aggressively as you like, but love of the world is hatred of God. It really is hatred. When you talk about it's like the triumph of the flesh and the devil, then it's necessarily hatred of the things that God has instituted to bring wellness to creation. And so instead of like the practices of uh, slowness, slow mastery, 
giving your attention to things for a long period of time, you have an infinite series of messages and an infinite series of opportunities to consume things and feed for your insatiable desire. You know, you talk about needing to begin taking your soul back, instituting practices to combat this. It's like, it's no joke to go when what's at stake is becoming someone who is real and really anchored to the things that God has orchestrated to bring flourishing to human beings versus being like continually swept away by an incredibly powerful current that, among other things, is offering to sort of feed your flesh. Yeah, I mean, we've literally forgotten how to be bored, right? Like, we, we don't ever find ourselves at a time or a place where the temptation isn't there to reach into your back pocket, flip open your phone, and just start reading. Right, or be entertained. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, literally, I I can't go to the bathroom without the temptation being to pull out my phone. And so there there are times and places where we were designed just to be with our thoughts and to be with our God. And instead, we now have all of these things vying for our attention. And again, gang, this isn't just about, oh, well, some people have kind of a more monastic approach to their Christian life. We're we're literally talking about the substance of your being, and we're also talking about the impact on the community in which you live. Because again, the data is rolling in that rates of suicide, rates of anxiety and depression among young people are directly correlative, directly correlative to the amount of time spent on social media. And it was fascinating, earlier in January this year, two of Apple's biggest investors, the people who own literally billions of dollars of Apple shares, wrote to the company an open letter. I don't know if you guys saw this, but they were saying, have you seen the data? Do you understand what this is doing to children? Like, you need to be more responsible with what you're putting out there. I think that it would be very easy for listeners to go, oh, those ransomed heart folks. They're just... They are kind of monastic, and, and you know, they do have a deeper life with God, but come on, you know, this is just normal. He's saying, not only, yes, it's normal to this society, but it is harmful. What we are describing are deeply damaging things. When you choose the short view that this life is all there is, episode one, it is very damaging. When you exalt the self as the epicenter, as opposed to the other-centeredness of the Trinity, it's very, very damaging. You don't end up with a sense of self, folks. And when you allow your soul to be eroded indiscriminately so that substance is lost, that is not the fruitful life of Psalm 1. That's chaff. So here's where my thoughts went this morning as I was thinking about this. We really just started with, huh, what's this thing called the world? Well, point at that, point at that, point at clickbait, point at self-driving cars, you know, point at the fact that Americans check their mobile devices 85 times a day. Just point at something and say, what does that tell us? So I was thinking backwards into that, and that's when we got into the issue of substance. And what I thought of was the great divorce, C.S. Lewis's fantasy book about a group of people who are given the opportunity to take a bus from hell to heaven. So the little novelette starts out in hell. 
people bickering, people, you know, queuing up for a bus, and, and then the bus comes and it takes them to heaven. And the whole idea being they're going to be given one last chance to experience heaven. And here's what happens. The narrator's writing in the first person, and he's describing the moment that they step off the bus. And first, he turns to look at his fellow passengers in the light, literally like the illumination, the sunlight, if you will, of heaven, okay? I gasped when I saw them. Now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent when they stood between me and the light, smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were, in fact, ghosts, man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them at will as you do with the dirt on a window pane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dewdrops were not disturbed. Later on, he says, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out on my forehead, and I had lost most of the skin off my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even like iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young, tender beech leaf, lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort, and I believe I did just raise it, but I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. Later, he describes the inhabitants of heaven coming to see them, and he calls them the solid people. Okay, so the ephemera, or the ephemeral people, and the solid people. The idea being, gang, Scripture says, what shall it profit a person if they grasp the whole world and lose their own soul? Well, gang, you understand that you can lose your soul long before you die. It's not a passage about mortality and damnation. You literally can become chaff. You become so without substance that you blow away like the chaff in the wind, whereas the people who are grounded in the reality of the kingdom are called the solid people. And it's just helpful just to name that without significant uh, and regular decisions to the contrary, the world will do that to you. It is the default result of the world, the messaging, the proliferation of opportunity to actually make a person into chaff rather than like the sort of aggressive stance that's needed in order to develop the substance of the solid people. Blaine and I have been enjoying a book by Matthew Crawford called The World Outside Your Head. A little heavy sledding. It's not lightweight reading, but his whole premise is the assault on attention. But then he turns to look at the lives of people uh, who have to give a great deal of attention to their work, among them people who build pipe organs, and just the intricacy that is required of that skill and the long spans of attention giving to that and saying, like, there is substance literally to their brain, to their neurochemistry. Like, it, that kind of healthy attention giving is good for human beings. 
He goes on in the book to point out that this kind of mastery not only benefits a human being, but it immediately has a related benefit in the community that they occupy, where he, he talks about communities of mastery, and he just goes, this thing happens when people have the opportunity to commit to a long-term discipline where they actually have more substantial relationships, and actually they begin to relate with other craftspeople, and this whole other thing happens that really does resemble the kingdom of God simply by the sort of surrendering of attention to really demanding things that people were made for. You want your prayers to be effective. We were doing a clinic on prayer uh, with a small group of people a few weeks ago, and, and one of the points I was trying to make is your prayers are effective to the degree to which you are present to them. If you are distracted in prayer, I guarantee you, you will see less results. It's just the way it works. Your attention, the devotion of your full being to it, makes a difference, right? As it makes a difference in a marriage, as it makes a difference in parenting. We're not just trying to throw everything under the bus here. Let's offer a little bit of help before we sign off. What are you doing to try and disentangle yourself from all that we have described? One of the places I think this is most important is with our families, with our spouse, with our kids. And so a step that we've taken as a family is we have a basket in our kitchen for our phones. And so once we're back from school around six o'clock, everyone puts their phone in the basket for the evening. We don't allow phones at the dinner table. We don't have phones during our evening time as a family together. And it's changed everything about the way that we interact, about the conversations that we have. So many times in the past, I can remember one of my kids coming up to me while I'm looking at whatever on my phone and trying to get my attention. And there I was giving my attention to something other than my own kids. And so just for us, like we found that the only way to remove our attention from our phones was to literally move them out of our pockets and out of our hands. That's been really helpful for us as one way of doing that. Yeah. I love that one. Huge advocate of that one. And I like the no phones in the bedroom thing too. Overnight, yeah. I think that's killer. Not first thing in the morning. I think that's great advice too. One thing that I do and that I recommend doing is, you know, you talked about scrolling through your Facebook feed as an experience of shallow. The leading book right now by a neurochemist on the effect of the internet is literally called The Shallows, the way that it sort of dismantles a human brain. One of the great remedies to that is to practice the discipline of giving your attention to things. The easiest point of entry to giving your attention to things that I have found is books, hard copy books. And so one of the practices that I do, and it happens usually right as Ailish is going down at night, there's a window where there's like 40 minutes to an hour available and like read. Yeah, for pleasure. Yeah, because I'll learn something. But mostly because what I am practicing is this presence of working through something for more than five minutes, more than 10 minutes. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to add a playful one as well. I have to get online for things. Okay. I think most people do. And I do use some of those online study programs and things because they're very, very helpful. I want to quickly know the Hebrew for, you know, brokenhearted in Isaiah 61, and I can look it up. And I am playing the game now of you can't have my attention. As that stuff comes at me, 
exercising the discipline of, I'm literally not going to look at that. I can see it flashing in my periphery view. I know a video is playing right there in the sidebar of my screen. I am not looking at it. It's almost like a game now of jujitsu. You can't have my attention. Block it, dodge it, scroll down till I get that out of view or whatever it takes. The little 30-second exercise we did is something that I'm trying. I had a day off a couple weeks ago, and I drove down to take a walk in the woods. And in my car, I'm like, God, I just want to give you my attention. I've got some drive time right now. And I was just shocked and distressed at how difficult it was to simply give God my attention over a prolonged period of time. So I'm practicing that in small pieces. Go into my bedroom, go into my office, shut the door, be quiet, and just don't do anything other than I just want to be present to you, Jesus. I'm not going to play anything, listen to anything. I'm just going to sit here and allow myself to become more a person of attention and more a person of substance. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff like don't multitask, gang. If you're talking on the phone to someone, don't read email. Don't also scroll through your texts. Like, give things your attention, especially people, especially people, because we want to be this person in Psalm 1 who is so rooted. It says that they are like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do, prospers. And that's what we're after. And it seems to be that divorcing ourselves as much as we can from the world is kind of an essential to get there. You've been listening to the Ransom Heart Podcast with Blaine Eldridge, John Dale, John Eldridge, episode three on a series that we're doing on the world. We've got more episodes that we think will be really helpful to just get some clarity and some sanity and some perspective on this thing called the world. So look forward to talking to you next time.